Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by Amarillo Habitat for Humanity, which works with families across the city to provide an alternative path to home ownership. This includes financial stability courses, volunteer construction, sweat equity from the families, reasonable down payments, and no interest loans. It's not a free giveaway. Strong and stable homes help build strong and stable communities. There are a lot of great nonprofits in Amarillo, but Habitat is the only one focusing on affordable home ownership. It helps people help themselves, and that's why I love this organization. Thanks to Amarillo Habitat for Humanity for sponsoring this podcast. Learn more at amarillohabitat.org. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Marcella's, Rockwood Furniture, Proffer Aesthetic Center, Rafkin's Clothiers, and Randy's Shoes. Read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm Magazine at brickandelm.com and look for our January-February 2024 issue coming this week. Today's guest is Walter Thomas Price IV, otherwise known as Four Price. Four lives in Amarillo and is the Republican state representative for House District 87, which includes Potter County and much of the north and northwest part of the Texas Panhandle. He's also a distinguished local attorney and a vice president and trust officer for Amarillo National Bank. And I very rarely have politicians on this show. But after a very influential career and seven terms in the state house, Four has decided not to seek re-election. And you'll probably be hearing in 2024 from the candidates who are hoping to replace him now that his tenure in Austin is coming to a close. So I thought this was the right moment to have him on the show. So here's State Representative Four Price. Ford Price, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks hey. for being here. Thanks, Jason. I'm a fan of the program, the podcast. I love it, and thanks for the invitation. Well, I uh, am honored to have you here. I appreciate that you listen. I should probably say I'm not technically your constituent because <laughs> I live in Randall County, but it's uh, it's an honor to talk to you, and I, I want to start with you the same way I start with all my guests, and that's just ask why are you here in Amarillo? So what brought you to this area in the first place? I was born here. So uh, not by choice, but uh, I love it. I've lived most of my life in Amarillo. My parents were from Amarillo. So it's been home for you know a long time. I'm 56. And like mm-hmm. I said, most of my life I've lived here. But what brought me here was, uh, was birth. I was born at the old uh, St. Anthony's Hospital downtown. Where'd you go to school? At high school. I went mm-hmm. to Tascosa. Okay. Yeah. Did you have a sense, having been born here, were you one of those kids who was ready to get out once you got, (laughs) you know, started thinking about college and career? A little bit. You know, I mean, it was, I think most, you know, high school students, as they start to approach their graduation, start to think about broadening their horizons. And I don't care where they live, you know, they Mm kind of want to do something different or see different places. And and that was the case for me. I actually graduated high school a semester early. Um, and back then, you took your semester test at the end of the first semester, which was when you came back from Christmas break. Yeah, so, I remember that. I remember that. You know, you came back in January right after New Year's, and you took your semester exam. So I packed up my car that morning of my last semester exam in early January, probably mid-January, and went to the school parking lot, took my last 
semester test, which I remember was called computer math. Okay. And then uh, drove directly from that uh, parking lot to Austin, where I went to college at University of Texas, and started class Monday. Did you really? Uh, so that oh, was so a that Friday, class. and I started on Monday. You didn't take a semester off. I didn't then. take a semester off, and then I finished the that spring before graduation. So I actually came back and walked with my class okay. at graduation. So it was kind of an interesting time, but I was I was eager to to move, uh, I guess, a little faster than normal just because of it. Did you know at that time that you wanted to move into a legal career? Like, was that something that was clear to you? It was not. No, had no idea. Um, in fact, I was a biology major. So okay. when I went to the University of Texas, loved it, loved the science uh, aspect and uh, did that for two years before transferring into the business school. But yeah, at that time, I had no idea what, what I what I would do or what my vocation would be or degree would be in okay. or anything. How did you know? Like, how did how'd you figure that out? It was uh, just more experience, you know, there in, in college. Uh, after a couple of years, I realized if you weren't going to do research um, through a degree, and really I picked biology because it was interesting to me, um, you could go to medical school, mm-hmm. obviously, something like that. But it just, after a couple of years, um, maybe after a couple of chemistry classes, I decided I was less suited for that and more suited for more practical education curriculum. And I went into the business school and graduate degree in uh, finance, enjoyed that, you know, and, and had a uh, super time at University of Texas. And that degree, you know, served me well. Okay. What did you do at first with that finance degree? So I went and worked um, uh, in Chicago at the Board of Trade right out of college, lived there just for a year, mm-hmm. and then took a job with a uh, financial institution in San Antonio. So that took me, brought me back to Texas. And I worked there for uh, about a year and a half before going to law school in San Antonio. And that's, that's kind of what got me back. And I was interested at that point in pursuing a legal career, but needed to work and was newly married and wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, financially it would work out and timing is, is never perfect, but that, that seemed, uh, like a really good fit and and uh, really enjoyed going to law school. I mean, some people don't like the school part of it, but I thought it was great. Did you pursue a degree in finance knowing that eventually you would go to law school and you would have kind of that business background or was that a, a process? I think it, at some point that factored into it, but I did not start it thinking this would be, you know, a good base to have because I actually think you could almost have any degree um, mm-hmm. and and do fine in well, law It probably school. makes you a good yeah. attorney having <laughs> some sort of real world experience or specialization, any of those kinds of things. I think so. Actually, what what mattered to me, at least for me personally, more than anything, was that couple of years of work experience before going back to law school. And I think that would be the case if I went back to graduate school, you know, or any kind of uh, terminal degree program. I think that would be the case because. I looked at it much more practically, mm-hmm. treated it much more like a job, spent the time you know necessary to do well. I think it would have been less likely I would have handled it just that way had I gone straight from undergraduate yeah. to graduate school. Yeah. When you finished up law school, did you know like what kind of law you wanted to practice? Did you know that you wanted to come back to Amarillo? How how did that work out? I did not know I wanted to come right back to Amarillo. Um, at one point during law school, actually, after your second year, it's a three-year program, generally speaking, and you clerk, and that's pretty much the case today with, with firms who are essentially interviewing you for, for employment opportunities when mm-hmm. you graduate. 
And I worked for a law firm in Dallas for a giant law firm in San Antonio. It's based, it was at that time based out of Houston, which was the largest law firm in the state, Fulbright and Jaworski. And, um, and then, uh, got offers from both. And I didn't really work for anyone back in the panhandle after that second year in law school. So I uh, took the job in San Antonio. And then right after I took the job, I was offered a position at the federal court with Judge Mary Lou Robinson uh, here in the Northern District. It brought me back to Amarillo for a year because that was just a one-year position. Um, And it's probably the best legal experience professionally I ever had. She was wonderful to work for. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she was just a legend really in the legal profession and judiciary. But anyway, I worked for her for a year and then went back to San Antonio to, to accept my position with Fulbright and stayed there until I moved back to Amarillo in 1998. Okay. Tell me about that decision to move back. I moved back really to be closer to family. I guess that's the simplest answer I can give you. Family was all here for the most part. Sisters, my mother was here, uh, in-laws, you know, it was just a, a decision to be closer to family, to to, you know, raise kids closer to family and that sort of thing. And that that pretty much basically was it. Yeah. I mean, people who don't know should know that the four in your name refers to you <laughs> being the fourth, you know. Fourth to, Walter Thomas yeah, in our family. That's right. So, which is, I mean, typical of a family that stays pretty close. Yeah. If you want to name yeah. one kid after after all the dads yeah. and granddads. Well, Karen and I used to joke, my wife, uh, if anybody called our old landline and asked for Walter, Walter was never home because you yeah. knew that that was, uh, that was a built-in screening device. But yeah, my dad uh, grew up here, my grandfather, when he was alive. And so it was a way of keeping us separate to have a nickname and it stuck. I want to talk about your career as an attorney before we get to the political side of things. Um, so once you got back to Amarillo... What did that path look like? I started um, working, uh, well, not immediately when I moved back. One reason I wanted to be closer to family was my wife had recently passed away, and she was from Amarillo. Mm -hmm. And um, that that really necessitated, you know, a desire to be close to folks who could, you know, help me. And and the kids were very young. Uh, My youngest son was three weeks old. My daughter was two years old. So... Uh, I spent some time getting things organized here, a new home and selling my house in San Antonio yeah. and just getting, you know, life sort of uh, somewhat organized and creating an environment that was conducive to raising, you know, young children. And from that point, I took my time and actually got out of the l- traditional legal practice for a while, because as any lawyer will tell you, especially if you're in litigation, the uh, the calendar is never your own. You right, know, it's dictated right. by an opposing counsel or by courts and the judges. So really, that was not something I saw as being helpful for that situation. So I went to work at the old First National Bank, which was at that time, you know, shareholder owned, but, but Don Powell was mm-hmm. running that bank. And uh, he offered me a position um, there to do some legal work for the bank, but also some other projects there. And it was very flexible. And so I went to work there and did work there until that bank sold. And when it did, then I went back into private practice and practiced uh, here locally with a private firm for, for a number of years. Okay. And so that was that was kind of the trajectory. There's, there's a lot of people, and I've had these conversations before, that talk about the community here in its response, especially during a moment of crisis or a period of crisis and and knowing what you went through and returning, not just to be with family, but like, 
I, I know that there were people here that were like, all right, we'll, we'll help you get oh, absolutely. back on your feet, help you get stabilized. I mean, as, as a young dad in that position, you don't want to be alone in a place where you're not surrounded by the people that love you. That's exactly right. Amarillo was a wonderful community for, uh, for that. Everyone here, I mean, to this day, um, you know, you still run into people that you've known your whole life, mm-hmm. um, that have known you or your family. You know, it's just a remarkable community. Um, and it's one that I really appreciate as I grew older and started to have kids of my own, you know, because, you know, when you're 17, 18 years old, you kind of want to leave, but you realize pretty quickly all the assets and all the things that are great about the quality of life right here in Amarillo. So the community was nothing but supportive or neighbors and family and, you know, church and schools. Everybody was, uh, was just super and helping, you know, that was a difficult time for mm-hmm. our family, but they uh, have just been remarkable. Tell me about when you began to think about giving up or at least setting aside your legal career uh, for politics. When did that become like a an initial thought? Uh, probably, um, you know, around 2007, I'd say. Maybe maybe even a little bit earlier. I, I really had no desire necessarily to jump into politics. I saw the value just working in the community of how folks with a a drive or passion to accomplish things, what difference a single person can make. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, locally in Amarillo is very well known for its generous and philanthropic community. The the nonprofits that operate here and all the organizations that support our community are well um, funded and, and supported in many ways. Um, and I've seen how folks, uh, you know, can make a difference. And so as I was involved in those efforts personally, and as an attorney, um, it, it really started to make sense to me that where the law and policy intersects mm-hmm. is at the legislature. And I had had some um, folks contact me and say, this position may come available. Uh, my predecessor, David Swinford, had been in office yeah. for about 20 years and was considering retirement, although I don't know that many people knew that he would actually retire until he had made his announcement. And when he did... There was about 48 hours or less to the filing deadline. So the decision had to be made very quickly. And I had thought about it, but not to the degree you really need to think about it until you know it's a potential reality. So um, when that all came to pass, the decision had to be made almost overnight. And so there wasn't a whole lot of time to analyze, you know, for this specific job. And I'd never run for a different office. So, you know, it's not like I had been on the city council or county commissioner's court or anything like that. Um, And Karen and I talked about it extensively. And I always love to tell this story because we were up in the mountains with our kids. It was late December. I think it was almost New Year's Eve. And I said, if I'm going to make this decision, I got to file tomorrow. And, you know, I won't do it if you don't want me to. And so she said, well, I don't want you to. She said, you'll be away from home way too much. And I thought, yeah, and I, I don't know how much, but I know I'll be away from home a lot. And so we went to sleep and she woke me up about 3.30 in the morning. And she said, I can't sleep because I'm being selfish. I want you to run because we need good people in politics is what she said. And I said, well, if you want me to and you're okay, then, you know, we'll do this together. And so we got up the next morning. It was a blizzard. We drove in deep snow to this little general store in Basalt, Colorado, and faxed in at that time the paperwork and then had to drive to a FedEx delivery place to get the money in on time. And it was kind of a mess. But uh, 
fond memories looking back, and, and that's that's really where we started the whole process to getting into politics, but that's the only one and only time I've ever done it. The thing that strikes me about that is that you had not really been in politics, but when people connected to Swinford saw that he was you know, not going to run again, they started contacting you. Like nobody was asking me if I wanted to run <laughs> back at that time. So did they know you had a little bit of interest or was there something else that maybe they saw? I, I don't know that I had not communicated to anybody that I was interested if he was going to retire. So I don't think that was it. I think it was more some folks that I had worked with professionally in the legal field, as well as um, some friends that that thought, you know, this this would be a good opportunity to develop and use skills that you may already have mm-hmm. and to benefit the area. So it was, I don't know, it was a combination of things, I guess, is the best way to think about it. What year? When were you elected? So that happened in 2009. Okay. And so I started running at the end of 2009 and was elected in 10. And my first uh, session in the legislature was 2011. 2011. Okay. I want to talk about, because this is not something that gets discussed very often, but when you run for a position like that, it's not technically full-time, but like certain months of the year, that's all you're doing. And as someone who was a practicing attorney, like how do you think about career? Because you make a little bit of money, but right. not, not <laughs> enough to raise no. you know, kids on or anything like that. So how do you think about I'm going to be doing this job, but I also need to keep doing some other kind of job. How do you balance that? It's one of the most mysterious and misunderstood aspects of the entire job, uh, I think. The reality is state house and Senate members um, are paid $600 a month, and that's before taxes and insurance. So in Mm -hmm. reality, most of us pay the state you know, in order to um, do the job because you can't run a deficit. It's against, you know, our constitutional framework to, to do that. So you can't um, as a legislator. So um, you, you don't really make any money doing that. And I, I'm fine with that. The uh, the demands on the time, I think, have increased with our, like everybody's job in society, right. emails and and the, the uh, desire to hear back, you know, immediately and committee hearings year round. And, you know, for instance, this year, we've been in session close to 300 days. I mean, I've been in Austin way more this year than than any year that since I've been there. And so some years are like that. But yeah, you just have to do the best you can to juggle it. So when I was in private practice, starting off, uh, I would fly home or drive home on Fridays and work on Saturdays and, you know, turn around and go back on Sunday. And then at night, if I could, and usually the first half of the session, you have a little more time to do things in the evening. So I could do more, you know, of that work while I was there remotely, but it's just really hard. And then the last probably two months of the session, um, it's just nonstop. You just don't have any time. So the folks that are independently wealthy or retired or own a business where they can delegate everything sometimes have a better way to manage that situation. But if you work by the hour or if Mm -hmm. you are um, on your own, like a solo practitioner or something like that, it is a really difficult thing to juggle. And that, I mean, that's one of the challenges of being a a representative democracy is that the people who are most in a position to represent like that have reached a certain level of success or they 
have somebody who can support them. They don't need the money. And so, yeah, you, you, it's, it's hard for young people who haven't, you know, kind of gotten to a stable point in business it to is. run. It's hard for people that are working hourly or, you know, doing construction <laughs> or, or whatever. Right. Like, and, and so you end up with a, a class of people that don't always know all of the challenges financially of their constituents. I think that's right. And I don't know how to fix that. I don't know the way around that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure we will fix that. I mean, I think that if I, if I could wave a wand and fix one thing, that would be it. Uh, folks ask me all the time, would you like the legislature to meet year round, for mm-hmm. instance? And, and I would hate that. Um, Texas does it every other year for 140 days, which sounds again, like it's relatively part-time. And that sounds pretty, you know, good. And it is, and I wouldn't change that either. But if we were in session all the time, mm-hmm. you know, more like a congressional schedule, then I think it would be a disaster because I think people would make work. They'd figure out ideas that they just want to file as bills. And right. we would be spinning our wheels instead of being efficient. We would be, you know, just, just in a whole different category. So I'm glad it's the way it is. But that is the one thing I would try to yeah. fix. I know you have not remained in private practice as an attorney. So tell me what your, your quote, real job has yeah, been yeah. while you've My been paying a, job. Yeah. Yes, I go. I work at Amarillo National Bank. I work in the trust department. So I'm a trust officer and vice president of the bank and work uh, have worked there since 2015. Okay. Is that something that, uh, I mean, that's a kind of a callback to what kinds of stuff working with First National that you were doing at the beginning of your career. Yeah, it's a little kind of, bit different, it, but it is a little different, but it's it's very similar in the in the sense that I have a, a finance and banking background. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trust department deals with, you know, complex legal documents and when I was in private practice here in Amarillo, trust and estate and probate work was the lion's share of what I practiced. And so um, you know, I probably knew 90% of the employees in the department uh, referred folks there. So we work together quite often. And so it's a great opportunity to do, you know, work that I enjoy, but also um, use skills that I've had both in the legal world and the finance world. So okay. I like it. Plus you have an employer who probably understands. It's a much more flexible. This is what it's going to be And like. they've been incredibly flexible and generous with uh, with my schedule. I want to talk about ending up in a position like yours representing this area. I know that I, I would think every politician goes into the job thinking they know what it's going to be like, and they're wrong. You know, sure. there are surprises. And I, I wonder maybe what some of those surprises were for you after you were elected, after you actually started legislating. What did you not know about the job, <laughs> and what did you figure out? There's so much that you can't know until you're actually living it and, and working in that environment. Uh, the human aspect, the human element of the job is significant. The relationships that you have to have to mm-hmm. be successful, um, to establish credibility, I think is a huge part of the job that I'm not sure is written in any textbook or that you'd actually intuitively even understand. But, you know, when you're in that environment, um, you know, you know, you've got to pass bills through certain stages to to do your job or you know, and, and maybe equally as importantly, when to assert yourself to actually stop a bill from moving okay. if it's going to be detrimental. But to do that, there's human decisions uh, made by committee chairman, you know, committee clerks, uh, committee directors, the speaker. You know, the House dynamic is run by people. So just knowing their background, their experience, their life experience, their 
preferences one way or the other, their biases, you know, what part of the state they're from, you yeah. know, things like that uh, make a huge difference in whether or not you will be successful or unsuccessful and whether or not they trust and believe you, you know, and what you're advocating for or against um, is a big, big part of the process too. So I think no one can really teach you how to navigate that. You have to be down there because it's constantly changing. Mm-hmm. The turnover in the house is generally 20 to 35 or 40 people every other year. Yeah, every other year you have to run for re-election. Right, and so there's there's constant change in the body. And understanding the rules and understanding how the process works takes a little time. Um, but, yeah, no one can tell you how to navigate that system um, entirely. You have to kind of be there and see who you're working with and and that's uh, that's a huge part of it. and then you got another same thing about the other chamber so it's like no other system and it has its warts but it's a really good one when you boil it down you, you talked about the different parts of the state that are represented and I, I would think that texas is fairly unique in that we're such a big state right. geographically um population wise like there's so so many complexities that you have to deal with in a single state governing body. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about representing the Texas panhandle, you know, in a legislative body where people advocating for what's happening in Houston is not always beneficial to us or what's happening on the Gulf Coast or in Dallas. What was it like to have to work to represent the people of this area in an area that kind of gets forgotten, or we've always had the perception that sometimes we get forgotten by the by Austin. Right. Yeah, no, it's an insightful question because I, I tell people all the time the dynamics about partisanship and how nasty things can get, you know, in the legislative world happens. I mean, the Republican versus Democrat battles happens um, occasionally, especially on supercharged political issues. Mm-hmm. However— most of the routine debates and day-to-day um, debates that occur are not Republican-Democrat fights. They're urban-rural fights. Right. And they are big city, small community fights and things like that. And so I am, you know, so privileged to have represented the Panhandle because I love this area. And we have this, you know, great history and heritage of, you know, innovative, self-reliant, you know, can-do spirit here that, you know, I I think having strong advocates down at the Capitol really is, one, expected, but two, is beneficial for our our entire region. Mm -hmm. And it is very different. Like, Harris County has 24 House members just by itself of the 150. That's incredible. So if something's important to Houston, Texas, it's the tail that wags the dog often. And something that sounds great for what they need or the problems to address the problems they may have is going to increase the burden on somebody here if we have to do the same thing um, in many cases. And so I often, you know, would find myself arguing, you know, to carve out this area of the state or to change words here or there or to only have it apply to certain populations, you know, whatever the bill would, would do in order to best reflect, you know, its application on the panhandle for or against. And so, uh, yeah, lots of debates and issues arise because of problems in Dallas or Houston or San Antonio or Austin or down along the coast. Uh, The panhandle is, you know, 
I wouldn't say it's forgotten by any stretch, but I would say that we don't typically go to the government to solve our problems. We don't typically call Austin to solve all our problems, and we typically don't have a bunch of problems that need to be solved in Austin. We do have issues that that would, you know, need to be addressed there, of course, but I do think that a lot of the day-to-day arguments that come up are not what you read about in, in media reports for the most part, because those debates make a lot of headlines, but in actuality, a lot of it is rural, urban, real discussions mm-hmm. about the impact something may have on a community of different sizes because a one-size-fits-all solution in Texas rarely, rarely works. I told you we didn't need to get into the weeds of any political stuff because this isn't a political show. But I, I did want to ask, are there certain legislative victories that you're proud of? Like as, as your career wraps up, you're not going to run again. What are the moments you look back on and say, I'm glad I was in a position to be able to do something about that? There are many, uh, but right before COVID hit, um, well, I'd say in the session before, and actually the session before that, so in the 17 and 19 sessions, I authored and passed some legislation that would uh, provide for a higher and better use of telehealth and telemedicine technologies Mm -hmm. in Texas, Um, broke down some existing barriers, um, made the uh, application consistently apply between physical health and mental health. We had, you know, great uh, response to that. Also initiated and passed legislation to create the Governor's Council on Broadband Development. So mm. broadband and telehealth, telemedicine, all before COVID, yeah. not knowing that that Perfect was coming. Perfect timing. Then. Um, and so when it hit and we all started using, of course, telehealth and telemedicine out of necessity, which will never go back now because it's very convenient and effective in many cases, Um, especially giving access to a rural community. This is a perfect example of how, you know, they really can benefit um, significantly from legislation that, you know, folks in Houston can benefit from too, of course, but maybe for different reasons. If they're going to be stuck in traffic for 45 minutes, you know, and can't go to their doctor, but it takes someone out, you know, in Stratford 45 minutes or an hour to come to Amarillo, for instance, to see a doctor, then the same technology, but different applications. Developing broadband and and the telehealth telemedicine legislation was significant to me. And I've worked a lot on mental and behavioral health since 2015. So, you know, wrapping things up, I will look back and always be very proud of of those accomplishments, um, the progress that we've made in those areas. And then from a fiscal standpoint, things like uh, securing funding for the Texas Tech School of Veterinary Medicine was huge up here in the Panhandle, uh, as is the $159 million we just got to build a new state mental hospital here in Amarillo. Yeah, yeah. Those are ongoing impacts that we'll continue to see for years and years that will outlast you. Oh, of course, yeah. And, and, I think, uh, you know, we'll, we'll benefit all of the areas surrounding the Texas Panhandle. I mean, it's a benefit to the state, but I think specifically for us, and we'll definitely outlive uh, probably all of us. In addition to the intense educational prospect of learning how to be a legislator, you know, how to work with people, I know you also learn a lot representing this area about the area itself and the needs here. And I wonder what were some of the things you've learned about the people that you're representing in the process of being in that position? Well, the relationships have definitely been the highlight, you know, of the, the entire experience for me because I can go to any community in the Panhandle, especially those that I've represented now for, for almost 14 years, and 
have seen the resilience, you know, of, uh, of our communities, the challenges that we all face that have been addressed and overcome, just the, uh, you know, the, the spirit of everybody that lives in the Texas Panhandle, I think is very unique. I mean, it's different than it is in any other part of the state. And, you know, we just have a, uh, a community nature about us that is uh, very satisfying to live and work in. And not knowing, you know, even though I had that feeling living in Amarillo, um, until you're out in all these other communities uh, across the Texas Panhandle, you, you may take it for granted that it exists. But I'm telling you, it definitely does. And the history behind each of these communities and like I, you know, represent Lipscomb County and going up to Lipscomb for the very first time. Um, I actually thought Lipscomb was a city. I'd written down on my notes, you know, I'm going to go to the courthouse. And yeah. where is it? It's in Lipscomb, Texas. And then I thought, there is no Lipscomb, Texas. I mean, there is, but it's not incorporated. You won't find that on any city map. Um, but uh, it's a beautiful old courthouse that, you know, was, was uh, I guess when they built it, they thought that's where the, yeah. uh, you know, railroad and they it's thought that's where the uh, center of activity would be. And it turned out not to be there. But the forefathers wanted the courthouse to remain there. And that is the county seat of Lipscomb County is in an unincorporated area called Lipscomb. It's beautiful. And if you've never been there, I highly recommend it. But it is a uh, gorgeous place. But I mean, you learn a lot about the history of the communities. You learn a lot about the people that live there and have raised their families there for generations. Um, I'm just, uh, you know, it's edifying. It's very rewarding. It's very personally satisfying to go out and, and see these folks over and over again. And and get to know them, and uh, you know that's one thing I'll I'll miss is not seeing them as often, maybe. Right. But the relationships will last forever. Tell me what it's like. And I won't talk to Representative Smithy because he's going to be campaigning, and I don't do that sort of thing. But it is interesting to me that the two of you are in dis- different districts, but that district divides Amarillo, like Potter and Randall right. County, and so you're advocating for Amarillo. He's advocating for Amarillo. But it's it's two people, you know, <laughs> pushing for, for the needs of a single place. I know that's really complicated. And I wonder, like, how often the two of you work together on things. Um, I mean, the needs of the yeah. southern part of the panhandle aren't necessarily the same as the northern part of the panhandle. But when you think about Amarillo as the largest city between those, like, that takes some collaboration, I would think. It does. And we talk all the time. And, and you know... Uh, I don't know that it would work this way anywhere else. Like if you just theoretically had to divide, pick a city, yeah. Midland or Abilene. Abilene or Wichita Falls or Austin or Dallas or any city of any size, it'd be very difficult, I think, to sort of always be on the same page or try to be. And and Representative Smithy and I have never had a problem, um, ever, not one. And, and so it's one, you know, we always have been on the same page with regard to what is of benefit to the area, what is of significance to the area, what pitfalls do we need to avoid. Um, Sometimes we have different ideas about how to get there, Mm -hmm. but, you know, honestly, he's been wonderful to work with, and it hasn't been as hard as it could be, I think. And, you know, interestingly, John lives at the very end of his district. I mean, the county line is at the end of his block, and I live at the very end of District 87, okay. which the county line is at the end of my block, and we're one block from each other. That's so, really funny. Uh, yeah, we're kind of neighbors in reality, and and uh, so I see them, you know, often, even when we're not in the legislature, our offices are across the street from each other downtown in Amarillo, so I see them all the time downtown. Uh, but we're close, and uh, that re- relationship has worked very well. But 
I can envision a set of circumstances where it would be much more difficult. Yeah, I was going to say, it's good for the city that the relationship does work well, but like that's never a guarantee. Of course. Yeah. And, you, and you don't want to have competing representatives <laughs> representing the same city. And fortunately, the issues affecting the city and the area generally, we've normally not had lots of conflicts. So if, if items of statewide importance are good for this part of the panhandle, they're also going to be pretty good for that part of the panhandle. And, and so we've we've never had, you know, issues where we're just at loggerheads over, mm-hmm. you know, the, the matter because it's it's so controversial that it's only going to benefit one part of the panhandle or only 21 to 26 counties or something like that. It's not been the case. Um, so it's it's been a real it's been a real pleasure to work with them. So I, I want to close this up because you are not running again. This will be your last official year uh, as a representative. 2024 will be. People will start to hear about the people running to replace you. There will be campaigns. I know that you don't want to speak to anything specifically uh, with any of those candidates, but I do want to hear, like, what kind of person does your district need? Like, who do we need to think about, or what do you want to see even (laughs) in the person who replaces you? Not in terms of qualifications or career, but like, what do we need in a representative? What have you discovered is important for your job? Primarily, listening is a huge skill that I think is often overlooked, and it is vital to being a successful and effective advocate at the Capitol. When you have eyes and ears and relationships throughout the panhandle giving you the information that you need to be a good advocate, um, it's critical. So being a, a good listener and taking the time to to do that, I think, is something that I hope whoever wins mm-hmm. will prioritize. I think, you know, prioritizing the issues that are absolutely important to the panhandle, no matter who's in office, statewide, elected's on down, you know, it matter, you know. And so I think when it comes to issues like access to health care, when it comes to preserving, protecting, developing our water, our groundwater in the Panhandle, uh, when it comes to our education and uh, comes to both public and higher education and opportunities, community colleges, how those are funded and financed and protected and developed and encouraged. I mean, that's important, you know. So education, healthcare, water, uh, those are kind of basics that I think if we focus on and whoever you know represents the area gets to understand and know the issues. Um, they'll they'll be just fine, and we'll be you know better off for it. But I hope that uh, they're good listeners because they get the more information they receive. Not anybody, not a single person, can know it all. Right. So you know, having having a good uh, set of resources and contacts throughout the district that will give them the information they need to go down there and be effective, I think, will be uh, critical. What's next for you as your representative career wraps up? Well, I've got a uh, granddaughter and, who's going to be two in February, and our oldest daughter has identical twin girls on the way. So uh, I'm looking forward to spending a little more time with yeah. uh, with our family and, and certainly uh, getting back to normal what I call normal uh, routine. Well, I mean, and, if you're not you know, traveling to Austin, yeah, weekly, you know. then that'll be it'll be nice. And uh, just having a little more time here uh, with our with our family is kind of what I'm looking forward to. So this is an ad for Attorney Dean Boyd, but it's also a personal endorsement. My son Owen was in a pretty bad wreck at Texas A&M right after we dropped him off for his sophomore year of college. It wasn't his fault. 
but he got broadsided by another driver. It rolled his car. Owen climbed out the sunroof, and he walked away from it. And of course, we're so grateful for that. But his car was totaled, and Owen was left with a shoulder injury. So one of our first calls, once we determined that Owen was okay, was to Dean Boyd's office. Dean had been a guest on this podcast back in 2019. I knew his story, but it wasn't until Owen became a client that we really understood what he does and how meaningful it is, because working with his office was amazing. They treated Owen right, they answered our questions, they made the whole process seamless, and they were able to negotiate a settlement that covered Owen's medical bills and satisfied all of us. So for us as parents, Dean's office was a lifeline during a really stressful period. I just can't say enough good things about the law office of attorney Dean Boyd. So if you've been hurt in a wreck, call him at 806-242-3333 or visit deanboyd.com. And I want to thank Dean Boyd and his office for their support of Hey Amarillo. Okay, I'm back with four prize for this is the part of the show I call eight straight. Eight straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes dozens of rare and historic vehicles, including the 1910 Zimmerman Touring Car, uh, which is actually one of the rarest U.S.-made vehicles in history. And it was one of the first products of a horse buggy maker that turned to automobile production. You can see that at the museum. Learn more about it at panhandleplains.org. Okay, first question, and I know you've put thought into this. When you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? I hope for continued growth, but that we don't lose our character in the process. You see a lot of cities that grow tremendously, and they start to lose their identity a little bit. Amarillo's got such a uh, great reputation and a great community of residents that uh, hope we maintain that. Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? This is one of the hardest questions because wind is the obvious answer. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's why I had to yeah. <laughs> include a qualifier. I just got that question right. answered too often. Two things. First one is tumbleweeds. Okay. Too many of those. Um, also, that just driven. feeds into the narrative that that's what exists up here is a bunch of tumbleweeds. Um, so that's one. But two, a little more seriously, is the fact that we have too many people just driving through Amarillo and the Panhandle on their way to or from somewhere else and don't take the time to stop and get to know the area. So I think uh, if I had to say what we have too much of, it would be uh, that. I'd like to see a little more. uh, And I know we're working on it. I know people are working on it all the time. And and you've got evidence by hotels and things that are popping up and, and full, you know, a lot of heads and beds in Amarillo. But rather than just spending the night here, I'd love a lot more activity and in the city itself and out in the canyon and just, you know, all the things that we have to offer. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? Difficult question. I, uh, first thing that came to my mind is direct flight service. Mm. I would love to have a little more of that, although we, we are doing better. Um, you know, you can now travel to Houston and Dallas and Austin and, Denver or yeah, there's a flight to Denver. Now there is another again, Denver and Las Vegas. Of course, Vegas. the Las Vegas one. That always is there. Yeah, um, that but, one will stay. But. You know, I, I love to travel when we can. My wife and I do, and our family. So you know, would love to have a little more direct flight service, and um, that's that's one thing I think we need a little more of. And and I mentioned water a minute ago. I think Amarillo, the city of Amarillo, is doing great with regard to its planning and, and future needs, but. 
the area as a whole. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that will be constantly evaluated going forward. So I hope that we uh, take that seriously. I I want to dig into the flight service for a second because I know you know something about it. A lot of people just don't ever think about it. And then it's like, oh, there's a new flight to (laughs) Houston. Um, And then it might be gone in two years. You know, a lot of those are cyclical based on usage. But is like, is the city constantly talking to airlines and saying, we would like this flight. Can you try this out? I mean, is there a process that there is a legis- I mean, does yeah. it have to do with legislation or is it all just business? I think it's more business okay. and more city oriented. The legislature does not get involved in an airline's flight patterns necessarily. Now I've certainly made suggestions mm-hmm. um, like everyone else. Um, but, but really I think a lot of it has to do with travel patterns and usage. Of course they're in it to be efficient and make money and it has to make sense for them. I was on a recent flight, a direct flight from Emerald to Austin on Southwest and uh, the flight attendant, not, you know, told me that they they need about eighty people on on their flights to break even. Okay, and so I think you know, um, as long as these flights, uh, you know, from Amarillo are well received with a lot of passengers, then that'll open up more opportunities because other airlines will see uh, that we're flying places. We okay. have uh, a need, so I'm I'm hopeful that those conversations continue to take place. And I know they do at the city level. I just uh, glad to see that we're getting new flights all the time. Yeah. I always appreciate it and try to take those yeah, if, if I can. <laughs> What's one local nonprofit you personally appreciate? It's a tough question for me too, because I have had the privilege of working with just a ton of them um, and, and been involved personally in a whole bunch of them. So I almost hate to say one without saying a whole string of them. They'll all understand. Which, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they will. And I'm, I'm currently on the board of Cal Farley's Boys Ranch. Um, and my wife is a longtime board member of the Bridge Children's okay. Advocacy Center. And they just both organizations do phenomenal work. One that I think uh, some people are still unfamiliar with that I think does an incredible job here in Amarillo is Heal the City. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, I think more people are aware of the the services that are available there, but phenomenal work to community members that need it. And uh, uh, Alan Keister and his staff and the folks that develop that have done um, just amazing work over there. So I just have to mention them. Okay. What's your favorite local coffee shop? I'm going with Palace. Palace okay. is uh, is outstanding, and there's one close to my home and downtown close to my office, That's so true. it's uh, very convenient. Okay, what's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? Again, so difficult. I don't. I hate to name some, but you know, I stick to locals. I tend to prefer local restaurants with local proprietors. Um, recently, in the past five or six years. Uh, we've we have really attended uh, and enjoy eating at El Manantial down on yeah. uh, Emerald Boulevard. Yep, it's wonderful Mexican food. I have been a uh, customer at OHMS for a long, long time. Mary Fuller and her family have really done phenomenal work there with great food over a long period of time. So that's a good one for me, close to my office for lunch right. and as well as dinner during the week and weekend. But um, I, I know I could list. Just a ton. I went to high school with the owners of Tyler's Barbecue and Blue Sky. And I mean, I love them too. So, you know, Amarillo, one thing it has is a variety and uh, enjoy that. Okay. What's the most underrated thing about living in Amarillo? You know, the arts um, and I think what we have here, most people don't know about and they're very surprised to hear about it when I tell them we have a fully functioning, successful um, symphony. Mm -hmm. When I tell them about our performing arts center the opera, the ballet, the Amarillo Museum of Art, the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. Um, you could go on and on, you know, about what we offer and the quality of what we offer. 
And it's very unique. And for a city or a, even a community, a region our size to have what we enjoy is very rare. Uh, I know big cities across Texas that have had trouble financially keeping right. some of these things afloat, but we don't have any, any of those problems. And we just have a great arts community. So I think that, and it contributes to our quality of life. I think it's underrated. I mean, people complain things about the weather, for instance, yeah. but I think it's equally as, it can be as frustrating as it is beautiful. And uh, I enjoy all four seasons. And I think that's uh, also what leads to our quality of life. And I think it's underrated. Okay. Last question. And this is one that is just for you. I haven't asked this of other people, but right or wrong, what's the most common perspective about Amarillo that you encounter in Austin? That it's flyover country, that, uh, you know, there's there we're so far removed, over 500 miles away, that um, it has more in common with Kansas or Colorado mm-hmm. than it does with the rest of Texas. We're closer to several other state capitals we than are. we are to our own. <laughs> I mean, at least five. So, yeah. I mean, the the, uh, the perception down there is that, you know, we're not near as robust a community with as much to offer as we actually have. Um, people that have spent any time here feel very differently. But, you know, it's it's not uncommon to run into somebody who says, yeah, I don't know much about Amarillo, or I've been through there on my way to the mountains, or I've traveled through there, but it was late in the evening, I didn't really get to see it, or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, it's, a, it's kind of a common misperception. Okay. That concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would <laughs> like listeners to know about or to experience? Well, I know when this podcast airs, Christmas will be over, but it is That's Christmas true. time, and it, it is, and and this will still be happening. I'm confident, which is uh, one of the favorite things this time of year are the neighborhood lives and mm-hmm. what people do. When I grew up here. We travel to Bishop Hills because yeah. that's where all the center of activity in terms of people really going all out with lights and decorations were. And our neighborhoods had some, but it was nothing like it is today. Um, today, uh, and I love what some of the folks have done on their blocks together. You know, there's, a, there's I guess, uh, Ong Street you know, down in Wolfland mm-hmm. that they string lights across, across the street. The street. Yeah. And so you have to have buy-in from all the neighbors along the street, but it makes a beautiful, you know— block uh, and the homes are, are done. And of course, everybody's going more out today than they usually do. But uh, on Hawthorne Street over off 34th, um, everybody on the block has a giant blow-up Santa, the same one. And so I don't know where that came from, but they had to you organize that. It. They got to coordinate it. Somebody had to take initiative and make that happen. I think that's pretty cool. Um, you know, and you, you go anywhere in the colonies or in Puckett or in Olson. I mean, all these neighborhoods across all parts of Amarillo, uh, you kind of see where people have really um, gone all out. And when we have winter up here and it snows and things like that, I mean, it's just beautiful. So it's one of the things that as we enter this time of the year and even beyond Christmas, uh, I enjoy. And yeah. so I love that. It's, it's one of those things that has grown and grown, even calendar based growth. You know, <laughs> we get annoyed at Hobby Lobby when they have Christmas stuff out in August, but like, I don't mind when I start to see lights on yeah, before yeah, Thanksgiving of course. and then they last into January. It's, it's just like uh, holding on to a little bit of, of that magic that everybody likes. Nobody, nobody complains about the lights. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, it is it's a lot fun. Of fun. All right, Four, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I Jason, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks again to Four for the interview. Thanks also to Amarillo Habitat for Humanity, Attorney Dean Boyd, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting this podcast. And of course, to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Thank you for listening. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially. 
through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Heyamarillo's executive producers include Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Josh Wood, Corey Burns, Wes Reeves, Cindy Graham, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 333. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.